This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That's 20 years of dedicated coverage of Texas art spaces and artists, 20 years of hard work by our editors and writers, and 20 years of showing the world all our state has to offer. Since we're a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to donate to Glass Tire to keep our work going, you can become a sustaining donor or make a one-time gift at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Also, if you like our podcast, please consider subscribing to us and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's Art Dirt. This is Glass Tires, a bi-monthly podcast about topical art topics. I'm Christina Reese. And I'm Brandon Zeck. And we're going to talk about deaccessioning. Woo! You know, every, almost every day, if you read the national papers, there's something about museums going all in for the deaccessioning or not doing it. There's a lot of controversy. This has been going on for a while. It all kicked off really uh, when COVID, the pandemic kicked off because the American Association of Museum Directors, one of the governing bodies that, you know, decides accreditation for museums or whatever, decided to relax its rules on deaccessioning for two years. It was going to be a two-year span from April of 2020 to April 2022. And museums all across the United States deaccession things in their collections all, all the time. I mean, this is a thing that happens, but the rules are extremely strict uh, about how the money that comes in, how it can be used. These really strict laws about deaccessioning really keep museums from doing it, from abusing, you know, the the ability to do it and, and using it to to really to pay for their operating costs. Museums are not supposed to do this. There's a lot of things museums are not supposed to do, which we will get into. But anyway, there are people coming down on the side of museums that would love to be able to deaccession some things uh, in its collection to help pay for operating expenses, which is an indirect, that's an indirect process, by the way. We'll get into that as well. And then probably many, many more people who are saying, this is a slippery slope. You should not monetize your collections this way. Um, once museums start doing it, they'll get used to this easy money. They'll keep doing it. The collections, you know, this is a big, this is a controversy that's really about the public trust versus nonprofit stewardship. These, you know, decades, if not centuries old sort of ideas and ethics and laws of that govern how museums treat their collections or rather whether museums are really just meant to house collections or in to, to some degree for the people who are thinking of museums as living, breathing things that change with the times. Um, maybe they're more than something that just houses a collection. So let's let's get into this. Kind of the whole thing about this conversation is that it's really come into light, like you said, because of COVID, but it's something that's always been an issue whenever it's come up and whenever, I feel like whenever museums try to get out in front of the story about deaccessioning something, it always kind of goes the other way because it gives people the chance to voice their opinions. And people, generally speaking, don't like to see museums getting rid of something that they, 
you know, that they've either grown to love or that they feel like the museum should be holding on to. There's, there's a lot of cultural and just emotional reasons that people have feelings about objects and collections. And also, I mean, all of these objects have this historical feeling that we've built up around them and this historical weight and importance. So, you know, selling a Mark Rothko painting out of your collection, it's like, what's happening? There's a finite number of these things. And why are you getting rid of this? Because maybe it's going to go to a free port somewhere and the public, we won't be able to see it. Yeah, we'll never see we'll never see this Norman Rockwell again because it's going to go into the house of a private collector. Those are very legitimate arguments, 100 percent. But when you're right about the COVID thing, I mean, this these controversies have taken place since well before COVID. One thing that's different is that everyone is online all the time now. And, um, you know, um, temperatures have been running hot for a long time and people are 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 just i mean things are fraught everyone's getting upset about things <laughs> in ways that they weren't before because that's the world that we're living in right this second and i think that deaccessioning has kind of come under that but also i do think that this kind of vigilance that some people are asking for is a legit concern this idea that is it possible that museums would just really start to exploit these loopholes or try to make them permanent or try to monetize their collection in such a way that that becomes also permanent because right now museums are not meant to be counting their collections uh, with a dollar value when it comes to um, how it records its own worth. Um, Christina, this is what you're touching on is kind of the crux of this argument. And I feel like the bottom line fraught place of this. So in museums, annual reports, uh, you know, a museum or an institution or a nonprofit has to report on cash flow. They have to report on how many assets they have, you know, what's in the gift shop, how much cash do they have in the bank? What do they have as receivables that they're waiting on? Um, and, in these annual reports, normally a normal business would count all of its assets. So, of course, for an art museum, that seems like it would be the art. And that's not the case. In these museum annual reports, because of the way that museums have kind of wormed their way into the tax code and being able to be exempt from certain things and the way that gifts to the museum, by gifts I mean donated artworks, are processed, they don't count as an asset in the traditional way, and therefore they don't have to be disclosed. So, you know, you would think that you would look at the Met's annual report, the Met in New York, and you would see something around like, I don't know, assets in terms of art in the realm of billions of dollars. Oh, just invaluable. Yeah, you would never even be able to get a number, right? That's one of the problems for this. But you look at their annual report and there is no number associated. So then, you know, kind of by, by way of, kicking the ball down the road with this idea of thought, if museums start to sell their collections as assets, it kind of messes with that whole idea. So at what point, you know, after how many pieces that you sell for how many millions of dollars do you have to start counting your collection that you are selling as an asset. It, it's a whole weird tax thing. Some of you I know out there will kind of appreciate the digression, but it's also just a really kind of important way to couch this conversation. And in case what I said made no sense, uh, 
take a listen to Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. He did uh, two episodes this most recent season about this topic. The first episode, um, episode one of season five, addresses this whole kind of weird discrepancy in where museums stand. It's funny because, I mean, this is also part of the fear of the slippery slope. It's not really just that museums will start to use relaxed regulations on deaccessioning to start selling off important pieces in the collection. That's one thing that people are worried about. The other is this other thing about what counts as revenue or what counts as an asset. So um, when we go through this, you know, one of the things that, so traditionally if a museum sells off or disposes of an artwork, there's, there's all these Uh, rules there are all these bylaws museums have them individually and then there are these guidelines that are put forth by these governing bodies but in order to keep their accreditation they've got to go by these rules and the rules traditionally have been if, if you get rid of a work of art if you're selling it for money the money has to come back in to to basically buy new artwork for the collection or bolster the collection bolster the the mission of the museum itself it can't be used for regular operating expenses the loosening of these um, these regulations were such that if museums could, say, sell, work, establish a giant endowment, that the revenue that the endowment itself even um, generates can be used however the museum needs for it to be used. So the Baltimore Museum, for instance, was in the news a lot because they had picked out three artworks to sell, very controversial. One of them was by Bryce Marden, and it is a big no-no for museums to sell works by living artists, by the way. And I think that's really what got them the headlines and got them into trouble. But they were going to end up with possibly up to about 62 to $70 million, maybe more. And then they were going to they were they were going to juggle things around. What happens is money gets moved around. So most of the money is would be used for the same reason that all deaccession artworks money gets used but about 2.5 million of it they were going to push toward these new equity um programs and also to bolster the salaries of their own staff now that's not something that is typically taking place in an accredited museum in the united states so um i feel like they were kind of in between a rock and a hard place in some ways because what people are really asking for right now is for museums to be different from what they have been they're calling on museums to take a look at their history, to take a look at their collections, to take a look at what they have that maybe was ill-gained, maybe did not come to them in good faith, maybe these aren't the greatest things. Also, obviously, you've got museum staffs that are saying, why are the lowest paid staff members of this museum paid so much less than the highest paid staff members? How does that work? And you're also looking at people saying you need to diversify your collection. You've got to get more works in by people of color, by women, by queer artists, etc. And so here's where Baltimore got put, you know, got put out there as the bad boy for wanting to do all this. They were going to put 2.5 million into kind of these various equity programs. 2.5 million dollars in today's money in a city the size of Baltimore isn't all that much money. And because the director of the Baltimore Museum was saying, actually, we're not even financially in trouble. Then people are like, why are you going to sell a Bryce Martin, you know, and an Andy Warhol and a Clifford Still? And um, it was just kind of a bridge too far. Well, and there was real backlash also. Um, so, you know, they were going to sell these artworks and they this was in, I, I think, October of 2020. And they were about to pull the trigger and they it actually pulled these artworks from the auction and. Um, 
I believe, a couple, like, 11 hours before the auction was supposed to happen. But this really kind of split the community and also the donors. There were uh, some donors that pulled gifts that they had made verbal promises for to this museum to the tune of $50 million because of this move. And that's... I mean, that that's the whole thing about this is we're talking about the kind of seedy underside of money and value that both no one wants to talk about and everyone revels in talking about. So money is really what moves the needle. So if a museum is going to all of a sudden uh, lose $50 million and we're going to sidebar the idea of, you know, the ethics of pulling money that you've already verbally promised, that's that's a whole weird area that I think hasn't really been addressed in this situation. But I mean, to lose $50 million is it's almost as bad as pulling the sale and not having it happen. Like the money is going to almost be a wash at that point. And if it's going to put the museum into a worse financial position to move forwards with the auction, than it would be to not sell the pieces. It, it just, it, I think it didn't make any sense. So of course they pulled out. Yeah, they pulled out and uh, there was a there was a survey last summer of accredited museums uh, and the directors, about a third of AA museum directors said that their museums were at risk of closing or unsure that they would survive this pandemic. Now, um, that was last summer. That's not that's not now. And we're starting to kind of see what maybe some of the economic repercussions of the of the pandemic are going to be. But museums in smaller markets and museums that are not in big cities, museums that are not in tourist environments, museums that have had uh, philanthropical bases that have dried up and or died or evaporated. I'm especially talking about museums like in the Rust Belt in the Midwest they really are in trouble and their their different paths to revenue have actually dried up. I think that there's a, a certain amount of hypocrisy in some of these arguments because you have people saying that museums shouldn't be allowed to touch their collections for operating costs. But, uh, you know, the, the downside of that is we just will lose the museums. They'll just go away. I mean, and then what happens to the collections? I do think that major museums in major cities probably do have other ways to tap some revenue without selling off the works of living artists. But um, it's hard not to worry about these small museums being able to survive at all if they can't take advantage of the kinds of loopholes that have been offered for these two years. Well, one of the op-eds, Christina, that we read about this topic in preparation for this conversation of all of the op-eds that have been written about this topic, um, one of them really points at that and says, you know, there's one of the arguments about deaccessioning works is that it's going to hurt the institution collector donor relationship. But if it's a small localized museum that isn't going to have someone give a hundred million dollars to it anyway, it's not really hurting a relationship for the museum to get rid of this piece that they bought in the thirties. And like it, what actually is being hurt by the deaccessioning of some of those smaller institutions that don't necessarily serve as a bellwether and may need the money to really make ends meet. Of course, it's, I think, a little different argument with uh, the Metropolitan Museum, which is where everyone's attention has been most recently because of their insane budgetary shortfall because of COVID. Um, And I think everyone has mostly been upset because 
maybe these smaller museums, uh, their boards don't have the capacity to kind of fill that gap. But the idea is the most prestigious museum in North America uh, with one of the most prestigious boards in North America should have people that are able to step up who have really, you know, benefited in their wealth from this pandemic, uh, who should be able to fill those gaps rather than have the Met sell anything out of its collection. I think that's another crux of the argument is that the different ideas of what boards can do and what their actual responsibilities and capacities are. And just the way wealth is changing is, is shifting around and changing hands and, and the old collector kind of old school collectors who felt like stewards of museums in, in a sense, the way museums were stewards of their collections there, there's fewer of the old school collectors and new money and new wealth may not go to museums. In other words, the face of philanthropy is changing and the United States being so incredibly dependent on philanthropy for the arts to even survive has to be able to kind of clock this weather. It has to be able to clock this environment. We know that the richest people are getting richer. We know the middle class is disappearing and we know that poor people are getting poorer. You know, certain museums have audiences that are just getting older. They're just skewing older. There's a tremendous call for museums to sort of reinvent themselves right now, to become more inclusive places for the communities in which they exist. Um, They need more staff to do it. They need more programming. They need new ways to bring in community members. This is not cheap. This cannot be done with zero dollars. They have to make money to do it. Where's the philanthropy? In some cases, it just almost doesn't even exist at this point. And there's also, of course, philanthropy fatigue. I mean, we're a nonprofit. We know we know some of this stuff um, because we have to deal with some of these issues ourselves. Uh, luckily, we're in Houston and in Texas, and it's not so bad here. But, um, you know, be, having to rely f- almost fully on f- philanthropy in order to survive is uh, is dicey, and it's getting dicier. I feel like, Christina, it would be good to kind of touch on what the uh, American Association of Museum Directors says are criteria for deaccessioning artworks. Because if this is, you know, one of the metrics that people really go by, and to preface this also, um, in preparation for this conversation, we emailed a number of collecting institutions, the major collecting institutions of Texas, and asked them about their deaccessioning policies. And uh, the majority of them, I would say, emailed back and said that they are in accordance with the uh, American Association of Museum Directors and the uh, Art Museum Association of America. Um, So, you know, if if these are the policies that museums are really going by, then I think it's worth kind of noting. I'm not going to read you the whole white paper, but the idea is um, works can be deaccessioned if they're poor quality and they lack value for exhibition or study. If it's a duplicate and doesn't have any value, like it's not part of a series. Um, If the work essentially is illegal for the museum to possess or there's ideas of repatriation, which of course has uh, also grown in recent years. Um, There's uh, some weird idea around the attribution of the work or it's fraudulent. Um, If the work is so poor that it can't be restored or it's not worth restoring it. Um, If the work isn't consistent with the, mission of the collecting institution or of the institution period. If 
the work is being sold to improve the museum's collection. So that's kind of what the Baltimore Museum was trying to do um, in 2018 when it sold some previous works and it was going to spread the love and that money from selling works was going to go back into buying uh, artists of color and female artists. And the kind of last criteria is if the museum is unable to care for the work because of storage or display issues. Um, Really, the only instance of this kind of deaccessioning that meets these goals that I've seen that was in full force in Texas in recent years was when the contemporary Austin deaccessioned their collection. So the contemporary Austin in Austin, Texas, uh, it's gone through a number of names and it collected work initially and now as the contemporary Austin it doesn't really have storage space or room to display that collection. I've never actually seen the collection on display in that building but back in 2017 they gave that collection to the Blanton Museum of Art. It was like 700 works and the Blanton which is also in Austin right down the street uh, the Blanton accessioned works that kind of filled gaps in its own collection and then took on the job of deaccessioning the other works to 17 museums across the state of Texas. So it spread the love to a lot of more localized institutions, places like uh, the Grace Museum in Abilene, the Amarillo Museum of Art, the Art Museum of Southeast Texas in Beaumont, uh, the International Museum of Art and Science in McAllen, and you know uh, many others. And it was a way to get this collection into hands where it would actually be seen and be exhibited um, rather than just being stored in the contemporaries attic or basement or offsite storage or vault or wherever they were keeping it. And Christina, you and I, when we went to McAllen uh, a year or two later, we saw some of these works at the IMAS, the International Museum of Art and Science. And I have to say they were, you know, they weren't pieces that I would see being in the Blanton collection, which is why they deaccessioned them and spread them out. But it was really valuable to have those in McAllen. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons um, that is one of the upsides of deaccessioning for sure. And make no mistake, museums are deaccessioning the whole time. It's just, it rarely captures the imagination of the public because it's not big splashy stories with big splashy artist names attached to it necessarily. You know, it takes like a tiny museum trying to sell off its, to Norman Rockwell's in order for people to wake up and go, what the heck's going on here? But when a museum decides that it's going to sell off some musical instruments to a legitimate like research university that's known for its school of music, it makes complete sense to do that. It's actually going to, these instruments are going to a place where they're going to be seen, appreciated, understood in a way that a museum that never, almost never displays musical instruments can't even necessarily be the best stewards of these objects. Right. So, um, and of course, repatriation is happening all the time now, too, and increasingly so, um, which is kind of another process, but it is part of the deaccessioning process. Um, it takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of experts weighing in. It's a, it's a process, and it's not uh, uh, one that's ever taken lightly. A lot of museums will, they list their deaccessions, uh, their they, you can find them on their websites. You might have to dig around a little bit. I believe that for nonprofits, it's, I think it might even be a legal requirement. So you can see what the DMA has deaccessioned over the last however many years, and, and it'll tell you why and what it was and how that worked. And, you know, that transparency, it's not like, it's not necessarily that these museums are trying to do this sinister, crazy thing uh, behind the backs of 
their communities. It's but it, it, it really does catch the eye of some quite loud critics who are very willing to go to bat and say, you guys can't you guys can't do this. This is this is not a good idea. And this isn't going to lead to anything good. I think that this incredibly tight vote that took place in March um, about whether or not uh, to extend the the relaxing of the regulations as well as whether to monetize collections. It was like the vote was like 91 to 88 amongst museum directors, really, really close. I mean, this reminds me kind of of like the legalization of marijuana. Like it's gonna happen. It just hasn't happened yet. We're so, we're on the edge of it, you know. Um, I don't know that that they're it's they're gonna be able to hold the line much longer, frankly. To that idea, Christina, you know, I I feel like people inside the museum have a different view of this than everyone on the outside. And one of the things that I've noticed, and maybe it's just because, I mean, these people have a platform and their opinions just happen to line up, but I feel like a number of critics tend to be completely against deaccessioning. And I don't know why that is like Christopher Knight, um, wrote a very strong piece in the LA Times uh, against a museum deaccessioning a Jackson Pollock, like a major Jackson Pollock piece. Um, Tyler Green, uh, who has the Modern Art Notes podcast, started a uh, petition that the Met shouldn't deaccession pieces, and it's got something, it's got tens of thousands of signatures at this point. I, I mean, this is pure speculation, but why do you think it's art critics who are coming to the defense? Is it because we have this like inherent responsibility that we feel for the art and for the artists against the institutions? It's funny. I was wondering that too, especially about Christopher Knight and Tyler Green, because they are two of the, the loudest kind of, you know, opponents of deaccessioning really, but I wouldn't say that they would be, they'd be that way on every single case. But I admire how idealistic Tyler Green and Christopher Knight are. I think their hearts are in the right place. And I think they're asking for people to slow down before they snowball on this slippery slope because it could be dangerous. I think one of the things they may be overlooking is I don't know that museums really want to deaccession, especially anything that has any kind of publicity attached to it. I don't think that it's a fun process for them. I don't know if they've got like like the money signs, like flashing in their eyes, like a cartoon, like how much money can we make off of this? I just don't believe that. So to some degree, I still actually believe that the curators love their collections too. That's what's so interesting about this controversy. And it's something that you and I were talking about before we even started is you can make very, I think people can make actually quite good arguments for either side. Um, and I, when I read Christopher Knight, when he writes in such a passionate way about uh, having problems with these cases, I'm, I believe I'm with him. I'm like, but then when I read somebody else write about how tiny museums are suffering and may just die and close entirely if they're not able to deaccession some things and start putting it toward operating costs or expansion or whatever, uh, that I just start to feel for them. So. I mean, I, I don't have a super strong opinion. I don't think that they, I don't think Baltimore should have tried to sell a Bryce Martin painting, whether I like that painting or not. I think that was a bad move. Don't do that to living artists. That's where my passion like kicks in. It's like defending the artist. Yeah. God, defending the artist. Like don't tank their market. That's not cool. An artist should never have to remove, uh, the name of a museum on their collections resume. (laughs) 
they shouldn't have to do that. But there's a lot of things happening in museums that are kind of for them are modern age that are unprecedented, like taking the Sackler name off of a wing. You know, I mean, stuff's happening. The world is changing. The world will continue to change to think that you can keep everything locked in amber and have every rule continue to be the only rule is is not realistic. I, I don't think that Tyler Green and Christopher Knight are incorrect. I really don't. But I do think that there probably has to be some sympathy and some flexibility, especially on the parts of on behalf of museums that don't have the resources that the Metropolitan Museum of Art have or that the Guggenheim has, you know, I just I feel for them because I want the little museums to survive and I want them to survive for the sake of the communities that have those museums and for people like you and me, when we were 13, 14, 15 years old, finally getting to go to museums and looking at art in museums and how groundbreaking that is for an individual. But Christina, how different would that experience be if, you know, the museum didn't have that one Rothko? Because that's the question. Unless the museum gets crazy and just sells off everything, which I, that the museum definitely doesn't want to do that. But if the museum didn't have that one Rothko painting or that one Jackson Pollock painting. Is it going to be that much less of a visitor experience for that 13, 14, 15 year old to go have this transcendental experience with art? Depends, depends on how good the Pollock is. I think, I think that, um, I think that the rules would basically essentially, if the vote gets turned over too in the next few years, I think that the rules or the, or the guidelines would just be rewritten. And, so you can use sales, deaccession, uh, revenue for operating costs, but don't sell your one Rothko. You know, they already basically <laughs> the basically the, the kind of the guidelines are already uh, about that. You know, don't sell something that you only have one of. Don't sell an important painter and you've only got two of them. Don't. So it was kind of, you know, when the the little museum in the Berkshires was going to would sell its two Norman Rockwells, which, by the way, he gave them personally. Uh, while he was alive, these two, and they're pretty good Rockwells, I've got to say. Um, you know, that is a shock. And I think that it, that is the kind of thing that's going to make somebody like Christopher Knight and the rest of us sit up and go, don't do that to that museum. Don't sell it to Rockwells. That's crazy. But at the same time, I can't I can't stop feeling sympathy for the people who are running the museum as well, especially if it's not a really wealthy museum. Um, I had a I ran a Kunsthalle for four years and we didn't have to collect, thank God. But I certainly got a, a very <laughs> close and in the trenches experience with what it's like to try to balance the books. I don't know. I think I and again, I think things are changing so rapidly. I just think that guidelines are going to have to be rewritten. And I do think that that vote's going to turn over. And I think that we're facing a whole new era. I do. And I don't know. I just would like to think that museums are not are not going to abuse this. I guess the fear is that they will just really abuse this and that they really will start selling off their good stuff and their good stuff will disappear and we will never see it again because it will be in a vault, you know, somewhere in Switzerland. What do you think? Do you think, do you think museums are just gonna, you think that they would just jump to exploit or abuse these loopholes or they're not even really loopholes. It's just a relaxed set of guidelines. I mean, that's, it's really difficult to say because I mean, I, I would think that the Met wouldn't start selling its really important works. And I think that's generally true. You know, again, using the Met as the gold standard, right? Um, I think it has a number of other artworks and ways of thinking that it could go through much more swiftly to take the brunt of this. But 
I don't know. The problem is it's such a finite resource, especially if it is an original painting or an original sculpture. It, I mean, this thing is a one of one. So is MoMA going to sell the Demoiselle de Avignon? No, I don't think so. We don't think so. Of course, we don't think that a lot of things are going to happen that have happened. So maybe there's a reason to be worried about it. Well, exactly. If if MoMA can build a new building because they know someone who wants to buy Demoiselle d'Avignon for $600 million, will they sell it then? I, I posed that question to a museum director. I mean, you and I were off the record with different people who who have some experience around this stuff. I posed that exact question to a museum director and said, if if a very very wealthy per- person came to the museum and offered to give you this much for this paint, and as far as I know, this this doesn't happen. Like they don't get these offers. Like it's that's still so that's still so far in the 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 ether of possibility or future that they're not even thinking that and i think that the question was almost insulting like no a russian oligarch cannot come to our museum and buy our one jackson pollock you know whatever our our caravaggio but i don't know stranger things have happened i mean it's it's such a hard thing because your responsibility to the institution and the longevity of that versus your responsibility to the objects that it holds right it goes back to that argument if there's no institution it can't hold any objects so if the institution closes what happens to the objects they get sold for parts another museum tries to buy them another museum gets gifted them right and then they sell some of them because they can't take on a whole other museum's collection you know versus like if someone comes in and offers 500 million dollars for this painting or this sculpture I have to say, I mean, as someone who admittedly is responsible for an organization that has a much smaller budget than um, the Museum of Fine Arts or, you know, the Dallas Museum of Art, if someone came in and was like, I'll using our April Fool's post that we just published as an example, I'll buy a I'll buy a nifty of glass tire for 70 million dollars. I would say that would set glass tire up into perpetuity and glass tire could live forever. So I would consider that. And maybe museum directors, if they're moving around more or have, you know, other career ambitions or have less of a responsibility to an institution, it may be easier to deflect something like that. But I don't know. I think I'm essentially believing in the the fundamental integrity of most of these museum directors or curators that they're not going to cave to some of their baser ideas about how to bring in revenue. I feel like I feel like. But however, um what I do think could happen, and we're going to be looking at this, all of us who are watching auction markets and museum news, we'll be seeing what museums do between now and next April, you know, when these loopholes are meant to close. And they will close, by the way. Um, but I would think that museums could probably pick and choose a few key works that would get them a nice big chunk of money that would begin an endowment that would allow them, kind of like what you're saying about selling glass tires and nifty. That, that would get them an endowment that would really um, lift the financial pressure off of them for possibly decades. You know, if let's say Baltimore did do $63 million and got an endow- and made an endowment out of $50 million endowment out of that. I mean, I don't know how soon it would be that they would need to really sell anything major again for a really long time. 
an endowment is worth, and a lot of museums have more than one endowment, obviously. Um, but well, that's that's a whole separate conversation about that how money is earmarked in museums, and you know, money is earmarked for education. So they have a thirty million dollar endowment, but on, that money can only be spent on education. So it doesn't help with the curatorial staff and the the operating cost, and you know plumbing the toilets and that kind of things in the building. So that's, that's, yeah, that's a whole separate thing. Or there are endowments that you can only buy women's artist work or you can, or there are endowments that just fund the salary of a particular curator. I mean, I just, I guess maybe I just feel like the people who work in museums love the art as well. And they're just not, um, they're not undertaking this stuff lightly. I could be wrong. It could be that, that I I just don't understand either how desperate things could get or how greedy museums could get. And, and, I, and I don't know how museums are meant to answer the call of the, of the public that is demanding some pretty big changes to take place uh, around, um, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion without being able to fundraise. Diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion is a huge part of museums going forward. It is, I mean, and people are watching museums like Hawks, I have to say. We know that because we see it. If critics are saying, you guys can't do this, you guys can't do this, you can't do this, they might want to offer up some, you know, ideas about how they can generate some revenue um, because there's just a lot of people kind of armchair quarterbacking in a sense without necessarily bringing up ways of, fixing this problem or, um, or surviving beyond the pandemic or beyond whatever, you know, this pandemic economy is going to be. Anyway, on that note, I just, I do wonder, we do wonder which, which museums could be facing an existential risk at this point and what, um, options they're looking at to dig themselves out. Uh, and we know that, um, this will continue to be news going forward and especially the spring auctions coming up. I'm sure people will be looking at the auction houses and trying to see who is selling what, including which museums. Um, what are you going to be looking for? What are you going to be watching for? I mean, I'm just going to be looking at who continues to sell. I feel like one of the museums that got a little under the radar with this uh, whole situation was the Brooklyn Museum of Art. They do session quite a few things. Uh, there are some articles about it, but there didn't seem to be near as much community backlash, at least that I'm aware of. I don't think there was as much public backlash. I think behind the scenes, I think there was a lot of bitterness. So I'll be interested to see basically how how all of these things play out in the media. I mean, because that's the you know, that's the real place that this story is being told or at least one the public facing side of the story, the board of directors of museums feuding inwardly about what to do moving forwards is its own story. All right. Well, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on it because we're interested. And um, I don't think any of you out there need to worry that your favorite museum is about to sell your favorite Rembrandt. But uh, that's not what this news is. <laughs> this is speculation on how the world is changing. Um which includes our art world. So with that, um, we hope that this week you can take some time to put on your mask and go to a couple of museums. We got some in Texas and, uh, go see some art, go see some art. This podcast was recorded by glass tire and edited by William Saradet. 
Copyright Class Tire 2021.